0: Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Fake news, we hear about it all the time. It's the two words that have dominated so much in the past several years, Uh, but it's not totally new. And today I have a fabulous guest who is an authority and has written about fake news, the origins of propaganda, how it distorts our society, how we live with it, or maybe are influenced by it without being aware of it. He is Lee Hubner, Professor of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University and author of The Fake News Panic of a Century Ago. But why I'm particularly attracted to him is that Lee was, before he became a teacher at George Washington and other places, I might say, he was the publisher of the International Herald Tribune in Paris, which for many of us in the newspaper business was one of the best newspapers ever cobbled together. Lee, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks uh, so much.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
0: Why, why a century ago? Well, I mean, fake news is everywhere. The Russians Radical. do it to us. People do it to us. Politicians do it to us. What was the significance of what happened 100
1: years ago? Well, the fact that people lied to one another and fake news goes back to the beginnings of time. Adam and Eve and the book traces all of this through the greatness of the dominated history and changed history. But in the early 20th century, uh, uh, Susan Langer, a great philosopher, says, you only really see things once you have words for them. And this word propaganda discovered to be used to describe new newly discovered ability of people to do this in a massive way to mislead people through purposeful distorted information Uh, at first it didn't have a pejorative sense this word propaganda it was after all the name of the college of propaganda for the roman catholic church which was there to propagate the faith much as the ancient roman farmers used to propagate their crops so it's a latin word that suddenly took on a new meaning in the early 20th century and the book explores reasons why this suddenly exploded and it really exploded at that time it became a catchword if you didn't like some information while well, you said this is a fun word to pronounce oh that's just propaganda that's fake news and uh and it really became a, a passion an obsession and uh and a panic in some ways because of course what it meant was a democracy wouldn't function in the way people normally expected it to. The public was not the wise source of uh, steady wisdom. The voice of the people was not the voice of God. And suddenly people had to cope with that. And that, that period is interesting. And I remember some of the reasons why I thought it all emerged then and was struck by the parallels with what's been happening recently as you described.
0: What did general education have to do with it? people could then, around about that time, more and more people could read. There was a great boom in newspaper publishing, magazine publishing, book publishing, because more people could read and therefore were subject to what they were told in print. It was before radio and television took over. I
1: think it was a big factor. Print suddenly exploded everywhere. The printing press was modernized and, and, uh, paper was available much more cheaply and the railroads were there to send these newspapers and magazines, especially all across the country very quickly. And, uh, and all of that had its impact. But I think the basic thing that was changing, there were two things really, one was social and one was psychological. Uh, the social dimension changed. Woodrow Wilson said it was the de-localization of American life. The fact that the intimate community where people knew who to trust, they knew how to verify things, they could kind of put their hands on the things that counted. All of that began to fade, uh, and it's faded even more since. And more distant voices suddenly were calling the shots. And, uh, and that, that loss was pretty profound. One of my old professors, uh, Robert Rebe at Northwestern University, used to call it the, the distension of American life, mixing the words extension with the word distortion. And I, so I think that was a big factor. And then at the same time, uh, people became very aware, aware of uh, irrational psychology. Sigmund Freud was coming on the scene. People suddenly worried about neuroses and irrationality and the id and, and, uh, and with it came a huge flood of uh, writing about the mob mentality, the crowd, the herd instinct. Uh, and suddenly, human nature didn't seem quite so rational as it had uh, in an earlier era, not even potentially so. So I think those are all factors that contributed to this kind of explosion of of new doubt about democracy.
0: Wasn't there up to that point in time a greater confidence in experts? Those, as it says in the the Church of England, those set in authority over us, um, there was a belief in the church in certain political figures, in the structure, in aristocrats, and that all sort of came unstuck uh,
1: Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah, Uh, democracy uh, in some ways even stretched too far. Um, uh, The people getting a little taste of democracy suddenly wanted more and more of it. And so we suddenly got the popular election of senators in the United States, for example, and party primaries came in. So the instability of the public was more consequential as these things began to happen. Um, There's a story about Benjamin Franklin when the constitution had been written and he was asked as he came out of the hall in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, what have you given us, Mr. Franklin? he said, a republic, if you can keep it. But what's not so well-known is that there was a follow-up question, why the big if? What do you mean if we can keep it? And his comment was, well, once the people eat the cake of democracy, they may want to eat too much of it. So the founding fathers were pretty cautious about this popular democracy thing. That's why they divided up power in so many ways and checked and balanced and uh, assumed that even the vote would be limited to uh, more educated people and property owners and men and, and, uh, and not to uh, African-Americans who have been so often held in enslavement. So uh... let's
0: let's fast forward to the present day where fake news is a huge issue, Mm -hmm. uh, where we have means of delivering it that were never dreamed of in 1920 or so Mm -hmm. astounding means of delivering social media. uh, We're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it as formal propaganda, say, out of Russia into Europe, into the US. now we live in a world of disinformation and the internet has in many ways been a, an immense gift to disinformation.
1: That's uh, true, yeah.
0: Where it's do we go from here? Are, yeah. there lessons, are there lessons in the past as to how to deal with this instability in the knowledge base?
1: What well, suggests some ways of approaching it, I'm struck as you, as you describe the power of this new technology, uh, going back in history technologies have often been welcomed as having wonderful new uh, moral expectations and potentials and then there's a second wave where people are scared of different well that's happened with the internet when the internet first arrived my goodness we can anybody can say anything to anyone just think people can get educated and of course that same thing has been said about television and the radio and the printing press uh, even back in the 15th century, the printing press was going to be the great way where the people could suddenly read the Bible, but the great use that was first made of it was for pornography and for divisive commentary. And even going back, I love to cite this, Socrates worried a lot about the new technology of his age, which was called writing. And he said, no, it's going to wipe out the oral culture of old Greece and we won't know who to trust and who wrote it. Some of the things that have been same things have been said today. So, one of the themes of this book, in a way, is that there's nothing new under the sun. Um, in this connection, though, I remember uh, famously, I mean, James Madison uh, sort of led the way and worrying not just about the king up on top at the time the Constitution and the Declaration were written, not just about the king, but about the mob, the irrational mob coming up from down below. And uh, uh, he called the mob the rabble. Alexander Hamilton called the the people are the great beast. Uh, So it was not some romantic democratic thing that gave birth uh, to the American experiment in democracy. Madison had an answer to this. He said, uh, one of the answers is to divide up the power so nobody ever gets too much of it. The other answer he said, as he made his plea for states to join the new union and ratify the constitution, he said, maybe sheer geographic distance will save us. If there's a mob in New England, well, it won't infect Pennsylvania or the Carolinas. Uh, but of course, with mass media, and especially with the internet, this mob spirit can spread in seconds, not just around the country, but around the planet, as you just, just mentioned. And that's a new reality we have to live with. And, and uh, my students like to say that more media education and media literacy will help. Then there are the questions of how do you discipline what's allowed onto some of these platforms? Do you shut people off of them? In the name of free speech, they will say, well, you can't shut me out. But of course the obligations of free speech include some thought what is responsible speech. And maybe there has to be more constraint on how these platforms can be used and, and not abused. So I think that's a wonderful question. Well, we'll, well I that. have
0: had a list of the headings from the chapters in your book which are quite fascinating and tell the story of the book of course old realities and new perceptions the power of suggestion and the eclipse of reason the erosion of community and a distended society we've sort of covered those uh and then we get to uh ivy lee
1: the patrician propagandist tell us fascinating figure right at the beginning of the 20th century. He he had wanted to be a lawyer. He decided to become uh, joint forces with people then called press agents, and he invented a new distinguished, honorable, kind of aristocratic profession. Uh, He called himself a public relations counselor. And boy, he sold himself, uh, first of all, to the business community, including the Rockefeller family, and he worked to help them create a more serious, more statesmanlike family image for the Rockefellers and he had all sorts of very established elite clients and he had to defend all of this he made an interesting argument which is a little bit of a slippery one he said well if if i can help you make an argument and the public buys it well then that means it was honest and true and good because the public won't buy anything in the long run it's not honest and true and good so by definition, whatever he did, if it was successful, was ultimately consistent with the democratic spirit. Well, that was a bit of a, a double talk, I think. And then he had a successor who, I think was subject was one of the late chapters in the book, Edward Bernays, who came about 20 years later and really was another household name in America. And Bernays uh, was kind of a genius PR person, but he also wrestled with this question of whether whether it's legitimate to manipulate or mold the public. And uh, I think that is still an, a real issue Bernays have a way of solving it. He first of all wrote a book uh, in the early 20s called Propaganda. He embraced the word, even though it was becoming pejorative. I had a chance oh. to interview Bernays later and he said he backed away from that word as fast as he could and began to use other uh, double-talk phrases like while well, we're not propagandizing or simply crystallizing public opinion, that was, was or we're, uh, we're engineering public opinion. He never went quite so far as to say we're, we're manufacturing public opinion. But others would go on to make that suggestion.
0: To many of us, Bernays was the father of modern public relations, yes, rather so. than Ivy Lee. Yeah, uh, Bernays was the man who put a gloss on it, who showed that you could make a very good living at it. Uh, which it just hadn't been as a sort of as a sort of alternative to working in journalism. Applied by journalists, yeah. but essentially so. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we go back to the these technological moves, uh, mm-hmm. uh, we can go back to movable type, but let's come forward a bit. Let's look at the 19th century, where you had a confluence of better technology for printing, particularly. The, the linotype machine which would set whole lines of type, mm. which I believe was invented for the Herald Tribune by the Morgenthau the first, yep. mm-hmm. right. in 1893, I think. And that really made producing newspapers very easy. Uh, and there were newspapers, there were 20 in New York, I think that mm. they were very competitive, oh. but they were enormously opinionated. Yeah. Um, Pulitzer was not somebody who would have won the Pulitzer Prize.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: Uh, he was a man who pushed ideas that he favored, as did Hearst, and actually through the whole history of publishing, even the Herald Tribune, which uh, you were you ran the Paris version of it, which is, I think, the great newspaper. But the Herald Tribune in New York was bought by a man called Jock Whitney. Yeah, to to give a a conservative voice and to counter the New York Times which was seen as a liberal voice. So these pressures have been around for a long time. Then we saw radio come along with some really mad people in it doing really strange things but we lived through it. Along came television which had sort of, by that point there were various regulatory mechanisms one of which was the equal time rule, uh, etc. In the United Kingdom, tough libel laws had a regulatory effect. But that was all abandoned Mm. as we got a proliferation of media. Do you think we should look back to some of those things?
1: I think some people are, definitely. uh, Some kind of a Some people talk about just breaking up these big media platforms, social media platforms. On the other hand, it's hard to say that that serves the public because their very size and extent is a benefit that the public buys into. Maybe there are ways to make people uh, replace the economic incentives that some of these big uh, social media outlets have. Uh, Somebody says, if you're uh, not paying for something, you are the product. And indeed, the average user of Twitter or Facebook is the product because they're selling your data to advertisers. And, uh, and maybe if they could be, could be suggested that they charge users a little bit, maybe the financial incentives would change and with it, uh, some of the disciplinary procedure that the platforms themselves bring to the party. And maybe government uh, regulation of some sort, it happens more in Europe than in the States. Uh, will be an appropriate step to try to, as has been said down through the years, free speech doesn't mean you can cry fire in a crowded theater.
0: We've left out one of the great propagandists of all time, Adolf Hitler and his man Goebbels, uh, who really were masters of propaganda from demonstrations which suggest the superiority of the German people, to the lies, the endless lies, the lies about Jews, the lies about minorities uh, and the concept that if you told the big enough lie long enough, it would get a kind of uh, mm. following. It would, it would become yes. a reality of sorts.
1: Uh,
0: uh, where does that fit in, into your thinking and your research? The bigger the lie, the,
1: the more, the more it can change history. and and lies certainly have. And and they've been of all sorts. Uh, The Middle Ages were shaped by something called the Donation of Constantine. A forged document 300 years after Constantine lived that said that the emperor had given to the Roman Catholic church enormous power and property. The church itself caught the forgery but it took another 700 years to expose it. And it had reshaped European history. I think of the myth of the lost cause after the Civil War, which kind of erased the worst side of slavery and public memory and set the stage for Jim Crow, the society in the South. Uh, The yellow press, which you just mentioned, played a big role in bringing about the Spanish American War. And I'm going to go on and on with these examples. And of course, we see other big lies in our own moment uh, persuading people. And the fact that people maybe are more suggestible, more persuadable, that they have fewer local cushions to kind of set them straight, all play into this today as they did a century ago.
0: Maybe the very diversity, the very abundance, the almost excess of media doesn't help inform people, but enables them to find the media that plays to oh, them, that synthesizes their frustrations and their anger and makes them very narrow, not very broad. Uh, well as played. you know, yeah. as we know as newspaper men, that the time was when we would sell newspapers, we knew some people were buying them for the horoscope, uh, more people were buying them for the sports page than the front page. Uh, now you can live entirely in the horoscope or entirely in the sports page, no need to know anything else, uh, which is contrary to what was supposed to happen with the democratic uh, extension of media.
1: Yes, and then that leads people to say, well, maybe democracy isn't such a firmly well-based thing after all. If the consent of the people, which is what democracy depends on, can be coerced, if weaponized information can actually change the way people look at things, well, then what happens to this notion of consent of the government? I think throughout history, political theorists have paired the consent on the one side from the bottom up with coercion from the top down and tried to find a way in which leadership could balance the two. But what happened in periods of the sort we're discussing is that people discovered that consent could be coerced. And that phrase stuck with me and I made it the subtitle of my book, The Discovery of Propaganda and the Coercion of Consent. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to say, you can feel some of the people fool some of the people, some of the time, and all of the people, all of the people, some of the time, and some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time, and that goes right to your point. But then people began to wonder, well, wait a minute, if you now can fool more and more of the people, more and more of the time, well, that's going to add up to a lot of pretty foolish people. And then what happens to democracy? And that was the big worry that kind of panicked people back a hundred years ago too.
0: What about what I will describe as the pendulum theory of history, that, that things go extreme here and then they go back there, including public opinion. And sometimes there is a collective wisdom in public opinion. In our lifetime, you and I, Lee, have seen huge changes in the accepted public morals uh, it wasn't that long ago that homosexuals were arrested uh, for their persuasion. Uh, now the people who would arrest them would be arrested. That is a big change. That is a public yeah. change of mind, uh, not a product of, of of propaganda, but a product of a rethink. And it must have been fed by something.
1: Yeah. Well. People like to say, and again, this goes back 100 years, John Dewey was the great progressive educator, and he wrestled with this concept of propaganda as much as anyone. It was discussed some length in the book. But he really tried to say that education, the role of the educator, is, uh, is going to lead to public learning new things and seeing things in new ways. But he always had to defend that because where do you draw the line between educating the public mind and molding it, and between molding it and manipulating it? And there is a question that all of these people wrestled, wrestled long and hard with. But progressive what? education was one thing that came out of it. And maybe educators do still play a role. I think education in the United States has kind of let us down. Civics courses have disappeared. Uh, and and maybe, there, maybe there's an educational reform that would be necessary to go to your very point. Well,
0: one of the chapters in your book is the propagandist as educator. Yeah. Um,
1: that's where John which is dude. fairly
0: common. I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of dissent suppressed in universities nowadays. Mm-hmm. A lot of political correctness in universities, which is disturbing. Yeah. That that yeah. should be happening in the houses of learning is very distressing. Sure. Uh, how do
1: we about hate speech and all the rest? But then, how do you draw the line? How do you know what is unacceptable speech and what is acceptable? And,
0: I know how to draw the line, don't draw it. Find other remedies when people go over the line, the metaphorical line, but don't draw it. I do not think that self-discipline of uh, institutions works. Uh, Self-censorship produced the Hayes uh, office in the movies and did great damage to creativity in Hollywood. I think that if you can have third institutions like the laws of libel, mm-hmm. maybe something else. I think what is happening today is that you see public media running away because there's no, there's no uh, break on it. When you and I were in the newspaper business and we published something was wrong, we got it in the neck. Mm-hmm. We got it letters, we got demonstrations, we got lawyers suing us. Yeah. We took great care to try to verify the facts in our newspapers and in our reporting. Uh, we don't have that with today's dissemination over the internet.
1: Well, too many voices, and uh, it's hard to, I, I think people are still, journalists are criticized instantly if they make a mistake, but other people say, oh, that's just fake news, and uh, what do we expect, and uh, and you can't trust them anyway, and, and uh, so the the disciplines in journalism are have faded. I, I, I would emphasize we talked about progressive educators changing public opinion and enlightening it. Uh, I think another chapter in the book, uh, the final one, focuses on my intellectual hero Walter Lippmann, who, uh, who wrote his book Public Opinion in 1922, and he talked about expert leaders who could could help save people from their own. Uh, weaknesses and prejudices and from bad information. He, uh, he, he said, look, these aren't bad people. The public, most of them are trying their best. They have to sort out a complicated, uh, crazy world. Uh, they don't have time. They have their own lives to lead. It's all so big and so baffling. He said, the public is like an audience that's come into the theater in the middle of the third act and sits in the back of the balcony and tries to figure out what's going on. And he popularized the term stereotypes in which simplified ways of looking at things had to be used by the public in order to understand what was going on and try to comment on it. And among those who he thought could help rescue this were journalists, professional journalism. And this was the very moment when the great journalism schools in the United States began to spring up and journalism became a more professional uh, pursuit. Um, And then of course, had ups and downs in the journalism world ever since but this has been another constant theme I think throughout all of this history.
0: We've been pretty used over the years in traditional journalism and traditional publishing of a kind of duopoly but we don't see that anymore because of the very proliferation of media and because of the ability of the individual to select the medium with which they agree.
1: Yeah. Confirmation bias is the term people are using a lot. Things that confirm our biases. And so we surround ourselves with news we can like uh, and news we can uh, that will comfort us or at least uh, play to our biases and prejudices.
0: Lee, indubitably. And thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. You're a wise and accomplished man. And it's our honor right. to have met you.
1: It's an Cheers. honor to be here and to, to be with you. Uh, That's our
0: show for today. We thank you for coming along. As usual, I'm going to relax, and I do hope you remember to put on your mask. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.